like you to take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn with me to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 7 is where I'd like you to turn this morning with me. We're going to, I'm going to read in just a moment from verse 37, uh, but I'd like you to have your Bibles open to uh, this book in the Hebrew Scriptures. Leviticus chapter 7. Well, as I suggested a couple of weeks ago, you have heard a lot in the news over the last two weeks about the debate over same-sex marriage. I wonder if you're tired of hearing the discussion. Uh, it's been all over. Uh, this, there have been uh, public arguments. There's been announcements from politicians changing their positions. There have been newspaper editorials. It's dominated the news. Uh, toward the end of this past week, uh, Albert Moeller has been making an observation in his uh, blog and on his uh, podcast that I think uh, is important for us to consider. He has been observing that, uh, that morality is no longer a part of the debate. That is, uh, we are no longer talking about the moral issues the moral issue, the moral rightness or the moral wrongness of homosexuality as we discuss governmental sanction of same-sex marriage. Now, let me give you some examples of this. Uh, during the Supreme Court hearing on the Defense of Marriage Act, Associate Justice Elena Kagan read from uh, one of the uh, congressional documents when they passed the Defense of Marriage Act in 1996, and this is what Congress said uh, 17 years ago. Civil laws that permit only heterosexual marriage reflect and honor a collective moral judgment about human sexuality. This judgment entails both moral disapproval of homosexuality and moral conviction that heterosexuality better comports with traditional, especially Judeo-Christian, morality. She asked the attorney who was uh, defending Doma about this, and he immediately backed off. Oh, no, we're just here to talk about uh, children and where children are raised. We're not talking about morality. Eric Tietzel, the executive director of the Manhattan Declaration, which is a coalition of religious leaders who uh, uh, advocate against redefining marriage. He wrote an opinion piece in USA Today. He defended traditional marriage, and then he said this. This understanding requires no judgment about the morality of homosexuality. Why not? Uh, the best, the best, it seems to me, and most articulate defense uh, of traditional marriage and argument against same-sex marriages in a book called What is Marriage? It's not very big. It's not hard to understand. It was written by Robert George and Ryan Anderson. They defend traditional marriage from a natural law perspective, and they explicitly say in the book uh, that this issue is not about the moral nature of homosexuality. Uh, here's one more example. Some of you like to listen to Bill O'Reilly rant and rave. Well, this week he raved about, now he ranted actually. He, does he rave? He just ranted. Uh, he ranted uh, about the defenders of traditional marriage and he said they're just people who spend all their time thumping the Bible. So all we do is thump the Bible. Uh, Albert Moeller, he, he argues that, that setting aside moral, the moral question is a mistake. And I think he's right. It is our responsibility to say this. The Bible teaches that homosexuality is a sin. And its acceptance and endorsement in our culture by our government is a clear sign of our disconnect from our creator. 
We make that case. It's not the only case we make, but we declare it. We say that. And if someone says, well, that's just your opinion or that's just a religious argument. This is what we say. We say, if what I said is the opinion of the creator God to whom all human beings are accountable, then this opinion is the most important opinion that could ever be stated. Uh, It is not loving to say that, don't you know? It's not loving to identify people as sinners. A friend of mine wrote, love is love is love. The the problem is, um, it's not loving to cease warning people. It's not loving to stop telling people about the will of God. It's not loving to remain silent and not speak out in this issue that is so clearly addressed in Scripture. It's interesting, these days the only people actually who are using the moral argument are the proponents of same-sex marriage because they're saying it's immoral for us not to be accepting. It's immoral for us not to be affirming. It is not loving, though, to affirm what God so clearly condemns. Now, these truths can be said in an unloving way, can't they? We, uh, we have mastered that. The Church of Jesus Christ has a wonderful reputation in the United States for saying true things in an unloving way. It's not loving to talk about homosexuality in a self-righteous way as if it's the only sin or even the chief sin with which the Bible is concerned. It's not loving to talk about homosexuality as if we are immune to sexual temptation or as if no true Christian uh, struggles with same-sex attraction. It's not loving to talk about homosexuality in those ways. But in the midst of all the other arguments, we have to talk about this, this way, as the Bible speaks. Uh, even if it might not appear to be immediately helpful, or even if it uh, doesn't appear immediately convincing, even if it makes us sound like white supremacists. Remember what the Lord Jesus said, Matthew 10:24. He said, "A student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household?" Sometimes I read the Gospels and I I look at them and I think to myself, oh, if I could talk about right and wrong, about good and evil the way Jesus did, I I wish I had that ability. I wish wish, uh, that I could speak in such a way so that people would say, you know that guy? That guy's a friend of sinners. It would be a beautiful way to live. The Gospels highlight this about Jesus so that we, we, we stand in awe of him. So it's a wonderful thing. But even Jesus, who was the friend of sinners, was called the devil for what he said. We have a lot of offensive things to say, into our, to, say to our culture. Um, uh, we don't have to say them offensively, but we have to say them nonetheless. Now, This vanishing vanishing moral argument strikes me, I think, as further evidence in our culture of the disconnect between how we think and act and what the Bible teaches when it comes to sin. Sin, that old word. In its most basic definition, sin is falling short of the perfect standards of, of God himself. We live in a broken world. You are a broken person. We live for ourselves. We satisfy our own desires. We seek to establish our own identity, regardless of who it hurts, what it does. 
God created the world to function like an intricate machine, like a beautiful grandfather clock, and we by our choices have poured sand in among the gears. God created the world to sound like a beautiful symphony, and we're in the orchestra with our out-of-tune, out-of-rhythm instruments. God made the world, when he called it into existence, he made a beautiful piece of sculpture, and we have been chipping away at it and chipping away at it ever since he called this world into existence. This picture that the Bible paints for us of the brokenness of the human condition is not one that we are inclined to see ourselves in. If the Bible is a mirror and it shows us how things are and in comparison contrast to how things are supposed to be, we don't want to say, we don't want to own up to that reflection that we see in the mirror of the Bible. Uh, This is not a new problem. God has always taught his people to understand what sin is and what sin does. And today, as we have Leviticus opened before us, we come to the end of a passage where uh, God describes one of the central ways that he wants to teach the nation of Israel about sin, specifically the sacrificial system. Now, we know this is the end because of the summary statement in verses 37 and verses 38. Look what it says. These then, an obvious conclusion, are the regulations for the burn offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, the ordination offering, and the fellowship offering, which the Lord gave Moses on Mount Sinai on the day he commanded the Israelites to bring their offerings to the Lord in the desert of Sinai, period. We're finishing this morning talking about the sacrifices. We come to the end of that section of Scripture in the book of Leviticus. Next time we're in Leviticus together, which will be the first Sunday in May, we're going to pick it up in the only narrative section uh, of the book of Leviticus. So next time we're together in Leviticus, it will be stories. Finally, right? Um, uh, we've been learning about these different types of sacrifices since January, and I, I hope you've gained a new appreciation for uh, a new understanding of how worship functioned during uh, this time in this place. This place is so frankly, is frankly so far removed from us and so different. Uh, these sacrifices teach us that sin is very costly. These sacrifices involve herd animals, and not just herd, any herd animal, but the best herd animal that you have. And this book was written to a herding people. Can you imagine, imagine that you make desks for a living, this is your occupation, and every month in order to worship God, you had to find your best desk that you had made and go and burn it as a sacrifice to him. <laughs> this is what they're commanded. The best product of your labor, bring and offer to God. These sacrifices teach us that sin is is personal. This worship system was a bloody affair. And it was a bloody affair that you engaged in personally. You had to slaughter your own animal. You leaned on the head of your own animal and you slit that animal's throat. And you washed your own animal and you uh, presented it. You couldn't delegate it to someone else. You were personally involved in this. I I think about Adam and Eve. Right? In Genesis 3, this first, the first sinners, those who introduced sin into the world. And, and uh, the Bible says they were naked and unashamed before sin. And after sin, they were trying to cover themselves with leaves. It didn't, didn't, didn't work. Uh, so God covered them, the text says. He covered them with an animal that he, he slaughtered. I wonder, did, did Adam and Eve watch that happen? Um, 
And, and what kind of relationship did they have with that animal that God slaughtered that, so that they could be covered? Huh, I have a leather belt. I don't know the cow that it came from. It was not there when the cow was born. I didn't name the cow. I never fed the cow. Um, I bought this at a store somewhere far removed from the field where this cow ever lived. Adam and Eve, though, they knew that animal. He, Adam had named that animal. He, he had cared for it. He had been with it. And every time he and Eve looked down, they must have known, I remember this. I, I, I remember this animal. I, I knew it. And here it is covering my shame. Sins costly. The sacrifices teach us about the number of ways that we worship God, don't they? Um, everything, uh, we, we are to build our lives around Jesus Christ. That's, that's what we believe. We're, we're aiming in that direction. We're working on that. And these sacrifices express that God-centeredness in a number of ways, the number of ways that we come before God. For, for example, the burnt offering is an act of total dedication. We are totally dedicated to God. That's the goal. The fellowship offering, on the other hand, is an expression of thanksgiving to God because we have peace with him. Oh, and so I'm totally dedicated to God and I'm so thankful to God that, that we have peace. Sin offerings bring cleansing because sin pollutes. Consider the number of ways that we respond to God with our dedication, with our celebration, with our thanksgiving, with our uh, sobriety over cleansing We've talked about all these things over the last few weeks. We're in the section of Scripture, actually, in, in, that starts in chapter 5, um, where, where the, the, the instructions are to spiritual leadership. These sacrifices provide spiritual leaders with an opportunity to serve. This is the emphasis of the last couple chapters of, of this section. They tell, these verses tell priests how to receive the sacrifices and what to do with them, how to process them. At one level, these are very mundane explanations about what part of the animals you can eat and what part of the animals you can't eat. At another level, though, this reminds us that the priests, they stand as they stand and receive these offerings from the people. They represent God. And on God's behalf, they, they affirm and they assure those who come that God has received their offering. This, this, we, we've talked about how this applies to those of you who are spiritual leaders. Um, think about those who are under your care, your growth groups, your Sunday school class, uh, the congregation itself, your family. Be about the business, faithfully serving them by affirming and assuring them. Now, from that reminder about spiritual leaders, we're going to move on to another benefit of this system of worship. This is how God provided financially for the priests, and that's what we're going to look at today. Look with me at Leviticus chapter 7, verse 28. This is God's financial provision system. Leviticus 7, verse 28. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, Anyone who brings a fellowship offering to the Lord is to bring part of it as his sacrifice to the Lord. With his own hands, he is to bring the offering made to the Lord by fire. He is to bring the fat together with the breast and wave the breast before the Lord as a wave offering. The priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast belongs to Aaron and his sons. You are to give the right thigh of your fellowship offerings to the priest as a contribution. The son of Aaron who offers the blood and the fat of the fellowship offering shall have the right thigh as his share. 
from the fellowship offerings of the Israelites, I have taken the breast that is waved and the thigh that is presented and have given them to Aaron, the priest and his sons as the regular share from the Israelites. This is the portion of the offerings made to the Lord by fire that were allotted to Aaron and his sons on the day they were presented to serve the Lord as priests. On the day they were anointed, the Lord commanded that the Israelites give this to them as their regular share for the generations to come. The principle behind these verses is very simple. It's very basic. Here's what the principle is. Those who serve spiritually should be supported financially. That's what these verses are basically saying. Those who serve spiritually should be supported financially. And it will not take you long to figure out what's going to come next out of my mouth. Today, I'm going to make a biblical case for why you should pay your pastor. Which is a slightly awkward task. Um, it's awkward because I'm going to talk to you about two things, your money and my salary. Now, this is one of the liabilities of expositional preaching. We're committed to the idea that we should move systematically through the Bible. Here we are in the book of Leviticus. If this is nothing else, this testifies to our commitment to expositional preaching. We're moving through the book of Leviticus. And when you do that, when you move systematically through books, you can't avoid certain topics. You can't pass by them if you, if you want to skip them. So here we go. I know that this passage is about paying pastors because of the direction, uh, the, the connection that the Apostle Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 13 and 14. You probably see that there on your sheet. We're going to look in 1 Corinthians 9 in a few minutes, but just look at verses 13 and 14. Don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Now, let's talk for a minute about how this worked in in Leviticus. Now, the Levites, the tribes from which the priests came, did not receive an allotment of land. When they went into the promised land and they divided the land up, the Levites did not get land. They were not to be farmers. They were instead to devote themselves to the spiritual needs of the people. The priests were to always keep the fire burning. They were to be available to receive sacrifices and offer incense and care for the tabernacle. And for their support... They received this food. This is how they were paid. Now, two things here to notice. First, the Israelites offered sacrifices to God, and God gave the sacrifices to the priests. That order is important. You bring your sacrifice to God, and God is the one who determines that it should go to the priest and instructs that it should happen. Um, there's a strange thing. Verse 30, it's very strange. With his own hands, he, that is the offerer, the worshiper, is to bring the offering made to the Lord by fire. He's to bring the fat together with the breast. And he is to wave the breast before the Lord is a wave offering. It's a strange. No, I'm talking about wave offering. That's not. But it's, uh, um, so the man, the, the worshiper would bring his, the breast. And uh, according to tradition, the priest would put his hands with the man's hands underneath the breast. And they would wave it before the Lord. Lift it up and down and backwards and forwards. This is how they would worship. Very publicly presenting this sacrifice to the Lord. It was a sign. This is yours, God. I'm giving it to you. And then God directed that, it was, that, that this sacrifice given to him was then to be given to the priest. And the priest would take the meat. It was, it was his. Uh, in First uh, Samuel uh, 2, do you know that story about Eli and his sons? 
and, and, and Eli the high priest and his sons and what his sons did, they, they sinned against the Lord. It seems like by the time Eli came along, there was a tradition somehow involved in not just waving, but they would boil the meat and the, the priest would take some of the boiled meat, except Eli's sons don't like boiled meat, they like roasted meat, so they were trying to bypass the process of dedication and of offering, and, and God stopped them from doing that. First to God, then to the priests. Now, look at verse 34. We see this again here. From the, this is God speaking. From the fellowship offerings of the Israelites, I have taken the breast that is waved and the thigh that is presented and have given them to Aaron the priest and his sons. I, I have determined this. You bring the offerings to me and I am going to give them to the people. First to God and then from God to the priests. Now, there's something else to to notice here. The Israelites offered the best parts of sacrifice uh, for the priests. The Israelites offered to God the best parts of the sacrifices for the priests. Two parts are mentioned here of the sacrifice, the breast and the, the, the thigh here. Later in the Bible, the thigh portion is a portion that is reserved for the guest of honor. These are the best cuts of meat. I think Psalm 36 picks up on this a little bit. Look at what Psalm 36 says. It talks about the food in God's house. Psalm 36, verse uh, 7. How priceless is your unfailing love. Both high and low among men find refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. When God serves the meal, the food is fine. Now, this passage lays the foundation for the New Testament teaching about the relationship between those who serve spiritually and those who benefit from that service. And you and I have a responsibility to work this out together. This is, this is part of uh, the relationship between those who are full-time elders and, and the congregation. Be, because of what I do, because of what Pastor Scott does, preaching, affirming, assuring, I'm dependent upon you for financial support. And I want to suggest to you that, that this passage, that how we handle this, is one of the clearest signs that we are genuinely followers of Christ. The gospel has genuinely changed us. Why? Because this passage in the New Testament application cuts across two very significant vices Two different attitudes that the gospel itself strikes at. Let me, let me tell you what they are, and then I want to show you that, how, how the gospel strikes at them. First, it strikes at selfishness. Selfishness. Um, this is a passage, uh, and, and it's parallel in 1 Corinthians, that call for generosity. Not resentful, not grudging giving, but lavish, glad giving. Always to God first, always to God first, with the knowledge that about a third of it, and if we include our outreach partners, about a half of it is going to financially support those in leadership. And your response here is an important measure of how the gospel has, has struck you. How has, it, how has it hit you? It happened in the Old Testament. If you read the Old Testament, any time that the Old Testament mentions that there was a Levite that was farming, it is not a good time. 
In fact, in, in Nehemiah chapter 13, Nehemiah shows up and one of the things he sees is the Levites are out in the fields working. And he says, why are you out working and not in the temple serving? The people aren't giving. We don't have any resources. And Nehemiah corrected them about this. Uh, look here uh, at 2 Corinthians 8. 8 and 9. Look what this passage says. This is a little bit before the passage that Rochelle read to us this morning. Look what it says. Uh, I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. This is an argument about generosity, just the general generosity that marks God's people. And notice here in verse 9, he appeals to the gospel. Paul expects that if you really get it, if you really understand what the Lord Jesus did when he left the glories of heaven to come to earth so that he might become our ultimate substitutionary sacrifice, the ultimate cleanser of our sins, when you get that leap that he made, it moves you to be a generous person. A few years ago, I was serving at a fifth quarter event. Uh, we participate in these in the Penn Manor fifth quarters. Uh, this one was held at, at Crossway Church. So after a, fourth, after a, uh, a football game, it, they basically had a, uh, a party and they shared the gospel with the students who come. And while I was there, I saw a young man I had not met before, but I watched him for a little bit. I saw what he was doing, how he was speaking, the gestures he was making. And I went up to him and I said, Are you Ray Randolph's son? He didn't know me either, didn't know who I was. But I went up to him and I identified his father, and he looked at me kind of stupefied, and he said, uh, yeah, I am. I said, yeah, I, I, I could tell. I could tell because I, I see the way that you move and the way you talk and the way you gesture. Ha. I'm not sure how happy he was to be compared to his middle-aged father. Not sure. But the resemblance was amazing. It was in his just, just the way he, he moved. Paul's telling us here that generosity is part of the DNA of those who follow Christ. Those who've, who've received from him by faith forgiveness and, and life. Everyone else in the whole world holds on to their money. They hold on to their money because they think it makes them safe. They hold on to their money because they think it makes them powerful. And they hold on to their money because it gives them pleasure. But we have found ultimate security, ultimate joy, and ultimate safety in Jesus Christ. So we give. We give. We're free to do so. But the gospel also makes this passage work, not just by freeing us from selfishness, but from greed. Now, selfishness is for the givers in this passage. Greed is aimed at the receivers, namely me. Huh. Now, Paul teaches us uh, in 1 Corinthians 9 that this financial support is a right, but it is not one that is to be demanded. I want to read uh, several verses from 1 Corinthians 9. So flip with me in your Bibles over to 1 Corinthians 9, if you would. Here, Paul is making this very specific application. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and I'm going to start reading in verse 1. I'm going to read a few verses from 1 Corinthians 9. Uh, you'll find 1 Corinthians in the New Testament after the book of Romans, uh, four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, and it's right before 2 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 1. Look what it says here. Paul writes, 
Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. But Paul's going through a difficult time in his relationship with the Corinthians. They were criticizing him because he was not a legitimate apostle, they were saying, because he wasn't taking money from them. Everybody that they knew who had anything to teach them at all always charged them money, lots of money, and the Apostle Paul didn't charge them money. And because he didn't charge them money, they were starting to think, maybe he's not legit. Do you remember um, when uh, Jimmy Carter very famously carried his own luggage? He walked around carrying his own luggage as president. And there were people who said, um, well, on the one hand, there were some who said, wow, look at how, how humble he is. There were others who were saying he's diminishing the office of president of the United States by carrying his own luggage because presidents of our country don't carry their own luggage. Paul, you're not taking money. You're diminishing the office of apostle because you're not taking money. Pope Francis I. Is Pope Francis I a humble man or is he demeaning the majesty of the papacy? Or is he only a humble man in public? <laughs> I don't, I don't know. But there'll be those who will say, hey, if you don't wear the crown, Francis, you're not legit as the Pope. If, if you don't take the money, Paul, you're not a legitimate apostle. Well, he's going to talk about that. Verse 4. Don't we have the right to food and drink? I have the right to it. Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who must work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk? Do I say this merely from a human point of view? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because when the plowman plows and the thresher threshes, they ought to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? We're oxen, Paul says. Pastor Scott and I, oxen. Uh, let us eat the grain. It, it's, it's our right but it's not something to be demanded. Uh, Paul sets this for us by, by his example. I'm going to keep reading here in verse 12. I have the right, he says, but we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who work in the temple, we read this verse, didn't we? Um, get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in what is offered in the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Verse 15. But I have not used any of these rights, and I'm not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. I'd rather die than have anyone deprive me of this boast. Yet, when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this that in preaching the gospel I may offer it free of charge and so not make use of my rights in preaching it. 
Paul's great privilege was that he preached the gospel and he did it free. Free of charge. He, he didn't receive this benefit. I don't preach free of charge. Uh, Bob Kobe is, is our treasure. Bob Kobe takes really good care of us, of uh, Pastor Scott and me. He's, he's conscientious, he's diligent, he's faithful. He was talking to me a couple weeks ago about the projects that we're attempting to accomplish in, in the church. We want to install a lift. We want to buy, a land, buy some land. I, I, I think we're, we're getting closer and closer with the lift. I hope to have something definitive to tell you soon. So uh, Bob said very kindly to me the other day, he said, if you were like Paul and didn't accept a paycheck, we could have bought that land a long time ago. <laughs> and I said to Bob, I said, Bob, Paul didn't have a wife or children. Which is exactly Paul's point in the passage. Am I the only one who can't take a wife long? Am I the only one who has to, to work f- for a living? Bob smiled. He said, that's exactly right. What Paul is describing here is this is a privilege. It's not a demand. It's our right. What frees me from greed or what is, where the gospel strikes at the greed in my heart comes September when it's time to evaluate my, my salary. What's supposed to strike at the greed in my heart is that I have the immense privilege of preaching the gospel. Not too long ago, we were driving through the line at Dairy Queen and we were at the drive through and uh, the person on the phone, uh, on the other end, you know how they're so clear, so clear. It's a good thing, we, you know, blizzards, all right, that's it, okay. So um, I, I said to Claire, I said, wow, he really sounds depressed. She said, yeah. I said, yeah, I think I'd be depressed if I had to work at Dairy Queen too. Now she asked me what I meant a couple weeks later. And I said, no, I said, working at Dairy Queen is an honorable thing. It's, it's good to be of service and have a job. But, I said, I have the privilege of opening God's word and being with people at very significant moments in their life. I can stand up, I can go to hospitals and, and visit people and, and open God's word. I, can, I stand in front of grieving families. I get to participate when, when young couples are, are, are ex, uh, uh, exchanging vows. I get to stand up every week and open this, this book. I mean, this is an immense privilege. I would never want to work at Dairy Queen and give up this opportunity that I have. And that drives us away from greed. Because it's such an immense privilege. I'm not going to be somebody who demands my rights because I have this opportunity. If that Recognizing that eviscerates greed. And, and with this passage here this morning, we come to the end of our study of the sacrifices. This is an odd way to end. This is an odd way to end studying the offerings and the sacrifices. Maybe, but, but remember that this is, again, one of the ways that you demonstrate that you get what the sacrifices are about. This is one of the ways that you recognize that, that uh, uh, sacrifices to God are about expressing total dedication, not just in the abstract, but dedication that has worked its way into your mind and your heart. It's worked its way in deeply to your wallet. The gospel has worked all the way into what you do with what you own. Let's pray, shall we? 
Father, we come before you this morning and we are grateful to you for your abundant mercies to us. I'm thankful to you that that I have the privilege of of standing in front of this group of people and, and speaking this word. And nobody's staring me down. Nobody's scowling. Nobody's gotten up and walked out or thrown anything. We, we can talk about this together because of your grace to us. Father, we come before you again asking you that you would be at work in us to do and to will according to your good pleasure. That you would fill those uh, who, who give with selflessness and with generosity. You lavished generosity on us through Jesus Christ. Help us to be lavishly generous people. And Father, for those of us who, who receive of, of the, the, the kindness and the generosity of the congregation, would you eviscerate the greed and the demandingness? We want the gospel to be alive and vibrantly so in our wallets and our bank accounts and our credit cards. And so we pray that you would embed that deeply within us. Thank you. Thank you for the privilege of thinking about these things together. We pray all these things together in Jesus' name. Amen.